I believe in a world where we take the small steps to become the people we were designed to be. Welcome to the Becoming Congruent Movement. In this podcast, we explore people and concepts around becoming who you were designed to be, the profound power of our unique human experience. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Hicks, and I'm excited to take this journey with you. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Becoming Congruent podcast. We are so excited you are here. Um, I am have the pleasure today to have as my guest the amazing John Dingler. He is the founder of The Well, a nonprofit in Tampa, Florida, as well as the CEO of Well-Built Bikes and Well-Built City, and many, many uh, initiatives to come. So with that, John, welcome. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, so exciting. excited to talk all things uh, social enterprise and everything else under the sun. So start out and tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be in the space that you're in. <laughs> well, all right. Uh, how do I answer that? In uh, Yeah, so I would say I should go back to when I was a senior in high school. Um, I was in a head-on car accident and I smashed every bone in my face. So this is all metal plating and fake teeth and was, you know, put back together like Humpty Dumpty or whatever. And I was, I was, a, it was my senior year. It happened on Halloween night. I missed almost my entire senior year while I was in recovery. I was on a tra- tracheotomy, like a ventilator breathing for me for a while. And, um, and so that experience um, was both the worst and the best thing that have ever happened to me in some very real way. Um, I would say that it was the first time I ever thought about the question of God. And, you know, really, I think the reason, and I would have said, maybe I affirmed the existence of God in the original, the original move was so I had somewhere to point my middle finger, somewhere to point this blame, like, and you let this happen to me kind of thing. Right. And I had a long, hard recovery, but during that recovery, the doc, I went into kind of a, there's a ton of stuff in there, but I went in this kind of really deep depression, lots of physical, mental kind of pain. And the doctors convinced my parents, like you need to get him back into school. So I went to the end of my senior year. And the reason for that was just the depression so bad. They were like, you know, so they wouldn't take my feeding tube out in case I would stop eating. And they, I was in a wheelchair at the time. My mouth was wired shut staples in my head. And they pushed me back into school my senior year. I'm like, you have to go back which was horrifying. Um, really, really, really brutal. Hated them for that decision. You know, not ultimately, ultimately, I think it was probably a good move, but at the time I was like, this is a completely against my will. Sure. Um, and, and what little will I actually had at that time. And so the, one of the initial experiences, things that really stick with me is when you go to school and you're, you've been injured or you're in a wheelchair, you have a disability, they will let you out of class five minutes early before the bell rings. So you can get to your next class before the bell rings so that you don't get trampled in the hallways, all the students kind of running around. And I remember like getting let out of class and seeing all of these kids with disabilities that honestly I had never seen ever. I didn't know they existed. And now I was like in the halls with them among them, one of them. And I, and I was very unhappy about that. I wanted to like, hurry up my recovery, claw my way back into normality, whatever that means, and just get out of this kind of what up to that point had been an invisible people to me. Sure. And, um, and I, I would love to say, and that just stuck and changed my life. That's not what happened. Right. So I, I got back on my feet, forgot about those people, you know, like just put them out of my mind, but there was something about the encounter with pain and suffering in my own kind of darkness and depression. And then my encounter with like, these invisible people that were, you know, experiencing disability or whatever that may be marginalized in some sense in the high school. And then a couple of years go by of me just trying to put my life back together. I ended up going to USF, um, was using drugs pretty heavily, nothing crazy, mostly just weed and hallucinogens, some painkillers, things like that. A lot painkillers kind of were a holdover from all the painkillers they gave me with the car accident. And 
I, and I really, really loved hallucinogenics at the time. And I remember even thinking like, there's something here for me, almost like a spirituality. I started reading all these different things that folks had, you know, like Timothy Leary things, people that were really into these kind of things. Well, well, one night I actually had what I would say is like a profound religious experience. I took some LSD. And as far as I'm concerned, I, I had a real genuine encounter with God, whatever that might mean to you, like the, the source of everything. Right. And, sure, it, yeah. and I was, I was undone by it. And, and that night in particular, the one, it was such a gift, but one of the things I feel like it did was it breathed kind of meaning into the suffering. And it reminded me of these people that I had seen. And like, in some sense felt like I was given a calling or whatever. I came out of that a completely different person. It was like, there was a reason I was in that car accident, a reason I went through all this experience, a reason I saw all these people and something I'm supposed to do with my life. Now it wasn't immediately clear exactly what that was. Mm -hmm. And I interpreted, you know, probably maybe because I'm Irish, maybe because I came up Catholic, maybe whatever, maybe because I'm in the United States, but I did interpret that encounter with God in through a Christian lens. Mm -hmm. And so I immediately started trying to read the Bible and I got, and I was already pretty fascinated with philosophy. And so Jesus among philosophers of history was already someone that was quite impressive. I think most of the world agrees on that, uh, regardless of religion. And so I was just reading about this man and kind of like, and so all of this leads me to like, uh, this, this kind of moment where I'm like, I, I kind of have like a, I say it like I came to faith, you could say. Right. Um, and, and yet, I didn't really know where to go with that, what to do with that. And I tried actually going to church here and there and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I was like, I don't know what this has anything to do with anything that I've read about this person, Jesus, other than y'all sing his name a lot, whatever, but I don't get <laughs> what, you know, yeah. and, and eventually I remember, but I kept going and I was like, it's, it's something's wrong with me. It's definitely me. Um, but then they started, I remember like, I don't remember the number, but it was millions of dollars. They started like a building campaign to, you know, build this building and i was like all right um i didn't have all these ideas about the poor and justice and use of resources at the time things i developed in time but i just thought that's stupid i don't want to be part of this at all so i quit going but it had nothing to do with this connection to god this relationship with god that i was developing and eventually i heard about a local church that was going out to share food with the homeless and i thought well now that actually sounds like something that that sounds familiar like I was hungry and he gave me something to eat. That actually seems like something Jesus might affirm or talk about or whatever. Right. Yeah. I went out with this church and the first time I went, I remember I went out with a van that was going downtown. I know where it is now, but at the time I was like, I don't know where I am. It took me up to this really, this area was a really, really dark alley reeks of urine. There's a guy in the alley. Like I remember walking back with like a plate of food and a blanket. And I was like, is there anyone in here? And this voice comes out of the darkness is like, yeah, man, I'm here. And so there's a guy there and I kind of kneel down. No, I squat. I don't kneel because I remember it reeks of urine. So I squat down next <laughs> to the guy. I hand him this plate of food and, and he begins to eat and I'm super awkward. I don't know what to do. No one's taught me how to interact in this situation, but I just think like, I probably should just stay and like ask to do some questions. And so we start talking Let's tell me your story. You know, how'd you end up here or whatever? We have this great conversation. So I spent the entire evening with this one person. And then eventually they like call from the van. Hey, it's time to go. Hey, all right, man, I got to bounce. Good meeting you. Go home. And I still have a journal entry. Now I'm not a big journaler, but I went home and wrote, like I needed to process what happened that night. And I, and then th the line that stands out to me and the things that I wrote that night is, I think a lot of people do this kind of thing to feel good, but I don't feel good. I feel like shit. Because I have an extra blanket. I have clothes in the closet. I have food in the refrigerator. There's a car in the driveway. There's a roof over my head. I have running water that gets hot. Like I have every imaginable luxury. There's a thermostat on the wall that I can make the temperature cooler if I choose to. Like the amount of luxury that I live in, in contrast with this beautiful brother sleeping in an alley that reeks of urine, hoping someone comes by with some food to eat, uh, was like almost too much to bear. And I, and I was, and I, and I have called that ever since, like, that's when the haunting began. I began to be haunted by initially him, but then that led me to make up excuses to connect with people in the alleys, in the streets, 
kind of in the margins of our society mm -hmm. and which in the economic framework is the poor. It's always the poor, right? So, right. yeah. and I realized there's a real wealth among the materially poor. So I have a lot to learn. They have a lot to offer. And so I just began like pursuing those relationships and like looking for, and then, and then also became convinced that you need it too. So started trying to talk friends into like, you should come with me. You got to meet these people. Like they'll change your life. Like if, if what happens to me could happen to you, like the world could probably be a different place if we just knew each other as brothers and sisters and we could share and things like that. And so the well, the work of the well would evolve and emerge out of that. It, it wasn't the well initially. Um, we actually just, I talked a bunch of dudes into living in a house we called the Lake House on Lake Avenue. And we all moved in together and we just said, look, we're going to try to do kind of extreme hospitality, meaning like as aggressive as we could, like we made business cards with our address to give to folks on the streets that like you can come over, take a shower, take a nap, eat out of the fridge. Like it was mayhem at that house. Um, but basically the house itself, like we lived there, but we also ran it a bit like a flop house. Like people were coming in and out and that, and we did that for several years. Um, but eventually the wheels came off of it. Like, I mean, one month in particular, the house was broken into three times, a car was stolen. Um, someone got stabbed in the kitchen and, mm. and then, and then, yeah, it just like all I, and then, and then the, the kind of cherry on top eventually was we found a housemate kind of trembling in the corner. Like, I think that's a nervous breakdown. I think maybe we took this too far. Right. I, I think maybe we should like separate like our home from like a drop-in center. And right. so that's the well ended. That's what led the well to actually end up opening up a drop-in center. It was just a couple blocks from that house. And we had, and so we opened up a daytime drop-in center. There's a bunch of stuff we've done since then. And I don't know how much to say, that's kind of a long-winded answer to this, but, but I don't know how to make that shorter, honestly, because it's like, I got in a horrible car accident. I took a bunch of LSD and then I met some homeless people that jacked me up. And, and then here I am, I'm, kind of haunted by those names and faces. And like, the truth is that night coming home from the alley, the line that I wrote other than I think people do is, is I don't want to live in a world that works this way. And that's still the case. Right. And so it's like, well, I'm not into suicide, but that is the alternative. It's like, it's either suicide or what Huey P Newton called revolutionary suicide. Like you give your life to, to the world that you hope will be right. And spend yeah. yourself in that way. And so I'm a bit possessed uh, now by that, by that haunting, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, so then a bunch of stuff unfolds from there that, you know, comes to be known as the well. And we end up, I mean, honestly, I didn't even want to start a 501c3. I, I really liked the whole, it's in our home and we're just doing this because we're trying to be good neighbors. But when you move it out of your house, you need to rent a building. You need to, people to uh, donate some money to do it. You need liability insurance. You like immediately you had to incorporate and open up an organization, which I super right. reluctantly did. Uh, I thought right. I'll just throw this tool down in time. Cause I thought it was, I actually thought I was actually like against it at first I've come around and now I think it's a great tool and it's been hugely helpful for launching things like Wubble bikes and these other initiatives. Um, but yeah, there you go. That's enough of a, maybe a sketch of how yeah. I ended up here. I have a half written book that I don't know that I'll ever finish called, titled Jesus ruined my life. Um, that's, that's the, maybe the shorter version of how to say that. Sure. Mm -hmm. sure. I love it. I love it. So background on, uh, you and I, we met in 2015, maybe. I'm going to take your word for it. Cause I suck at timelines, but yeah, I don't, that I don't know. Sounds, that sounds about right. Yeah. Sounds about right. Cause I was, yeah, I think, I think, or 2016, but, um, and through, I don't even really, somebody asked me and I don't remember how. Oh, I do know. It was from, um, you were, you were assigned to me or maybe you chose me, I don't know, as a coach <laughs> with the social venture partners. And, oh, that's right. and that's right. that was actually right before we launched the bike shop, that's right. which we launched. So this would have been early 2017 because we launched that on Halloween, 2017. That's right. Halloween night. Mm -hmm. I remember mm -hmm. the trick or treat, the in the mall trick or treat. Yep. That's um, why we opened. Yep. They were, yeah, were there yeah, trick or treat. Right. Yep. Which is by the way, this, you know, my car accident was on Halloween. I was just about and to so, say, 
Was yeah. any of that on purpose? No, no, but it's super cool. And and there's another piece of this. Halloween, it's weird for being like, like all the, it's funny to me because you know, a lot of like Jesus people are like, oh, Halloween's not cool. I'm like, it's actually, I think, and I'll just let me soapbox on this for a second. Yeah. I think it's the coolest night of the year. Well, partly because of my personal, like that was my car accident. That's when we launched the bike shop. And we do this other cool thing um, with some college students. We partnered with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. They had these, initially they had some really bad ideas about how they could serve the homeless on Halloween, which I'd talk them out of, but because they were like, no, I mean, they were really bad ideas, like, like destructive <laughs> ideas initially, but right. we like talked through it. And what we came up with was we could trick or treat. So they really wanted to dress up and, you know, but they're college students. So they now dress up and go trick or treating in rich neighborhoods for canned goods. So they might show up at your house and be like, trick or treat. We're not here for candy. Cause you're like, what are these grown people here right. in a Harry Potter outfit with a trick or treat bag, but they're like, we're here collecting canned goods for the homeless. And so we would disperse them in like wealthy neighborhoods. So we do that. Uh, that actually happened the same night we opened the bike shop that was simultaneously happening. So they're out trick or treating for canned goods. We opened the bike shop, but the other thing back to this, just general, like Christians against it, I think like what night of the year do people open their doors to strangers, regardless of the masks that they wear or their appearance and offer good things to them just for stopping by. And in my mind, I'm like, I actually think Halloween is a picture of the world we dream of where you welcome strangers that look like monsters and you offer them good things. And I'm like, isn't that the dream? Isn't that like, it, it's funny to hear Christians hate on Halloween. Cause I'm like, I think, it's more like the world you're supposed to dream of the vision of the kingdom of God than any other night of the year. Yeah. And yet, and yet we're like, it's a demon night or whatever. Right. Cause, cause of whatever, I don't know. But yeah. So yeah, we opened up on Halloween. Um, cause the mall was doing trick or treating and I'm like, we're almost ready. So that's good enough. Let's just throw the doors open. And we did like a soft open. We opened Halloween 2017 and then we just stayed open ever since we were like good enough open. But yeah, so that's when we met and there you go. I got the timeline. Yeah, there you go. Okay, you've, you've locked in our timeline. Well, in that time, I have been blessed to watch this evolution, particularly of the bike shop, right? Yeah. So I learned about your history as much from having you speak in my class as from any individual conversation we had because you told mm -hmm. part of the story, although every time you tell the story, I learned more um, about your car accident. Mm -hmm. And about how you kind of came to be service minded and, and really dedicate your life to this. But um, so tell us about the inception. I love the story of the inception of the bike shop, how it came out of sheer necessity, like kind of it, it came to like, it basically found you, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, you know, I've been told I shouldn't tell the story. Like it's just a happy accident, but I'm like, but it is a happy accident. <laughs> so like, um, yeah. So we were, happy accident though. <laughs> we, well, yeah. So we were running a daytime drop-in center for the homeless, right? We had a place for people to come. They could take showers, get some groceries. And the main offering there, honestly, was a huge family room with air conditioning and, and by necessity, all leather sofas. And the reason for that, so we could sterilize them at the end of the day. Right. So, so we, you know, and there was endless coffee. It was just a big, it was a place like we really just said, okay, what is the city of Tampa not like not allow homeless people to do sit down, rest. Like, like there's like, if you fall asleep in the park, it's a crime in Tampa. So we're like, all right, let's set up a place and do the opposite of the city. Turns out that's like really good things, right? Like here, take a nap here, make yourself at home. It was a place to be a yeah. place. We couldn't give everyone a house, but we can make a space where everyone could make themselves at home on a regular basis. And so we did that. But among that, uh, in that space, like one of the things that is a deep conviction of mine and even why, I mean, this is related to why my podcast is called the work ethic, like right. work and the value of work is deep, 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 deep. Like I believe you need it as much as you need food, mm -hmm. but I don't mean a job. Right. And I'd heard this story about Peter Morin in the great depression, asking these guys at a bread line, like, why aren't you working? And they're like, dude, what are you talking about? No one's hiring. And he's like, what does that have to do with working? Look around. Uh, the streets are dirty that needs fixed. Like there's work everywhere. You look, just offer your services as a gift. Cause you need to work. You need, you will feel better. You will feel fulfilled. You do not need to wait 
for someone to pay you. And by the way, if you offer your services as a gift, if you become valuable to the community, then it probably will work out well for you. Probably people will start looking out for you. That just resonated. So that's the story from the thirties, but I just started echoing that conversation with people. And so we were like, well, look, you don't have work and you don't have food, but let's go out in the garden and grow some food. So we would work in the gardens here and there. And all these different things were raising chickens and fish and gardens and all this is going on. But one day, one of our volunteers, Jessica Brenner, um, who ended up being on staff with us for a, for a season and is still involved. She's now doing a lot of our garden stuff, but she had been in a, I don't know if she'd been in a car accident or a car broke down, but for about six years, she hadn't had a car and she just rode a bike and she would ride, you know, cycle in and volunteer with us. And that's just how she got around. And she was really known by that. Like she was like the bike queen, you know, she was president of the bike club at school and this and that. And she was there one day helping a guy who was on the streets, who had a bike fix a flat. And I was like, I, I remember walking in and seeing it and just thinking, I love what's happening right now. Like I'm in love with this. And so I pulled her aside afterward and I was like, Hey, uh, keep doing that. You know, there's a handful of guys here with bikes. Like that's a super cool common ground between y'all. Like just do that. And then I remember buying her a bunch of tools in a toolbox that are probably actually knowing bikes now. I'm like, they were all the wrong tools, but I brought her like, <laughs> I brought her a box of tools and I was like, Hey, you know, keep helping these people with their bikes. And, um, she's like, listen, I'm, I'm not here to work on bikes. I'm here to make friends. And I was like, cool, make friends with the people with bikes. Like you have that in common already. And it's super beautiful, super valuable. And I was pitching her, like, could you, you know, uh, could you imagine if we had this like bike shop and all these people could like build a bicycle and have access and address the transportation issue and get to what they need to get to. And then one day she came in and she said, there was another ministry here in Tampa called God's pedal power. And uh, they had been for 18 years, this older couple had just been building bikes and then giving them to people in need. And, and she got in touch with uh, Mike Olson, who was God's pedal power. And he said, listen, I'm, I have more broken bikes than I'll ever get to. So I'm going to swing by and I'm going to drop off 25 broken bikes at the well. So you guys can have them. So she came running. Hey, John, you've been saying this. I got the hookup. He's going to come in next week. Well, <laughs> incidentally, I had already, I had had an obsession with shipping containers and had already been talking to someone at a shipping container spot about getting a discounted or donated shipping container but I had no excuse or no reason to do it. I just wanted one. Right. And then as soon as she told me about these bikes, I was like, I got the reason. So I went and got a shipping container, put it on the property. We filled it with these bikes and the tools and we called it the recycle bin. And so a couple of days a week, we would let people just go outside to that, like a manageable number and you could go out and work on a bike. And so people would go out, find a frame. And it was like this homeless bike co-op we were running for years. We did it for like three years at that drop-in center before Ultimately, that drop-in center gets run out of the neighborhood because it gentrified. But like while we were there, uh, I, I think we saw over a thousand bikes go out the door over wow. those three years. Yeah, it was incredible. And so that starts happening. And uh, anyway, that goes on for a season. Ultimately, because we're getting run out of the neighborhood, I know that's about to happen six months to a year before we have to leave. And so I start trying to lock myself in the, I tell everyone, Oh, we're fine. We're fine. And I go in the office and freak out. Like, okay, what <laughs> seriously though, what are we going to do? Right. And I do what's called, you may be familiar with this, but like the kind of a Pareto, uh, like an 80, 20 analysis of our work. So I look yeah. at all that we had done and the idea for those that are listening that don't know is basically 20% of your friends give you 80% of your social fulfillment. 20% uh, of the work you put in gets 80% of the results. Same with your studying, whatever. It's just, and it applies in economics. It applies everywhere you look. It applies yeah. in nature, in the field, like 20% of these trees give you 80% of the fruit, whatever. Well, I started looking at all of our work and I was just asking like, what is that? And among the things that were like the most fruitful accidentally, I mean, I was like, this is accidentally genius. So the bicycles one, it's good, meaningful work that's actually really hard to do and right. builds community by trying to figure this out together. And then when you build it, it's a healthy physical activity. It is an ecologically friendly mode of transportation. Uh, it, and, and, and for these folks in need, so this is like a basic, like when you, people are material poverty, they need some food, they need some clothes, they need some shoes, whatever. But those are concrete material needs. 
But if you see a concrete material need, it's often important to ask like what underlies that, you know, what's behind it? What are the deeper issues? Well, one of the issues, the deeper issues that you run into constantly is it's lack of access and ownership. And what we realized by just watching this is the guys and gals that had built bicycles and gained ownership over means of transportation that gave them access to the rest of the city, services, economy, opportunities. It was a night and day different experience that they had. And so I was like, man, like this addresses the deeper issue. This isn't just, you need a sandwich, here's a sandwich. But if you get this vehicle, you can go get a sandwich somewhere else, right? You can meet a lot of your own more basic needs. And then on top of all of that, uh, I had this theory that some of these bikes were probably valuable and we could probably sell some of them. So we tested that out by running some pop-up shops. So I started going out and taking the name brand bikes. Like, hey, you don't need to rebuild these to get a job. Like just, we're gonna grab some of the best of the bikes that are here and we're gonna see if we could sell them. Turns out some people would buy them from us. And then we're like, oh, so we might actually be able to build something sustainable that we sell the cream of the crop of what we get in by refurbishing them, which gives us funds to either hire or get the materials we need or do whatever we need to do so we don't just have to panhandle our way forward which was we had we had already been thinking in terms of social enterprise at the time we'd started a little lawn crew and we were testing like can we do things with money can we make money and use it for these goals and the bike shop just seemed like incidentally like in hindsight i'm like this is the smartest thing we've ever done not because someone was smart but like just it just emerged out of a connection of like this available resource people on the street saying this is what we need and just kind of faithfully marching in that direction and then little do you know little by little and then by the way the name well bikes that guy mike olson who ran god's pedal power uh you know he's at the time i want to say he was like let's just say he was like 65 to 70 somewhere there right i don't know how old he is actually but he would say i remember him saying like the wells building bikes so they're well built get it (laughs) and like and I remember thinking like, yeah, that's not, we're not going to call it that. That's horrible. Um, and, and then, and then we little by little, it was like, it came somewhere else. It came somewhere else. And then we were like, you know what? That's a good name. Let's roll with it. Like, and then let's do a good job to make them well-built and, um, and it's worked. It's stuck. And we're super happy with the decision. And I just always laugh. And I think back to that first encounter with that cheesy dad joke. It was like, they're well-built and like, yeah, that that's been our namesake now. So we transitioned from the recycle bin to well-built when we launched, well, when we started doing pop-up shops and actually selling bicycles. Sure. I'm going to challenge your idea that of happy accident, because Mm. what I hear from the story is an understand, a deep understanding of need and an inventive and intuitiveness on how to use what's there for that need, mm-hmm. right? So yes, the interaction between Jessica and the, the one person fixing their bike might've been the first sign, but you you see a thousand scenes every day, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thou- more than a thousand, right? We all walk through life seeing tens of thousands of, of moments, right? That's there right. had to be something there um, on your part and on a part on the parts of the people that you brought around your orbit to, to talk through this and to make that happen. Um, that's way more than a happy accident, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. And and, and honestly, the, the entire, like we've never known what we're doing. We're yeah. always amateurs and we're always just, we do everything wrong the first time. And it is, you, you see some, you see an opportunity, you leverage what you have. You're, you have to be, I mean, innovative just out of like necessity of being broke or whatever. Um, but the, I think the, the thing in, and I think that's a good challenge. I think what feels like the happy accident is the retrospective. It's like, cause how many of those things don't turn into a well-built bikes. Right. Um, or, and, and even that doing that analysis, I honestly was surprised because I thought that was peripheral to our work. Like, Oh, and there's this little bike shop outside. But like, that's cool. And it is cool. I love watching it. I love seeing people get bikes, but I was like, we do like food to the hungry. I thought the family room, like we don't have a family room right now. And I was like, that is a a necessity. 
But in hindsight, I was like, man, that gets us run out of every neighborhood we've set one up in. And it's way too expensive to set up and tear down and set up and tear down. I, I mourn the fact that we don't have that space. I so miss it made it so easy. You just like walk into a room and there's 50 people there just to hang out with. It was just like, it was wonderful, but uh, you know, it's not what we have today, but yeah, right. no, I appreciate that. Yeah. I think that something else that, that you brought up earlier and I didn't want to interrupt because we were on a roll, but a piece of your story that has always stuck out to me is this ability to be uh, comfortable in the uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. And it goes back to your very first conversation uh, in the alleyway, right? You describe that as I was awkward. It was awkward. I didn't know what to say, but I stayed anyway, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's such an important lesson for us as humans in, in life, but also particularly for kind of entrepreneurs or anyone who wants to do something new, whether that's change jobs, change careers, write a book, you know, ride a bike, climb mountain, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you have to get, you have to be okay with this is uncomfortable, but I'm going to still stay here because it can only get more comfortable, right? Like it doesn't, things that you get only become more comfortable, not not more discomfort, right? I mean, they may, maybe it, maybe it goes a little more discomfort before it gets comfortable, but the, the yeah. longer you stay in a situation, the more you know what to expect, you know uh, the rhythm of whatever it is, you you try and fail and get better the second time at it, right? Like whatever the scenario is. So yep. what's your what's your take on that? No, I think, I mean, I think you're exactly right. And I mean, obviously there's probably scenarios that are uncomfortable, that aren't productive, that are, they'll just kill you or something like that. <laughs> probably, but, yes. but anything worth doing is going to be hard and is going to be uncomfortable. And, and then for me, I actually am nervous if I'm not. So like, so like I moved into a really rough neighborhood that kept me on my toes. Right. I mean, I didn't, I was one of the only white people in the neighborhood other than a couple of roommates that I had there uh, really like it was a really poor neighborhood, lots of crime, lots of drugs. It ended up becoming home and actually ended up becoming the neighborhood that gentrified and ran off all the poor people ultimately, which I, I, you know, even know, like we're connected to that trend, even as one of the earliest people in there, like I, I own that, you know, Mm -hmm. but, but like I was very uncomfortable. And then in time I was very comfortable. Like I was home and actually what started making me uncomfortable was what made a lot of neighbors uncomfortable, like the police on the block or things like that. Like I wasn't up to no good, but they weren't exactly a happy presence in the neighborhood. Whereas like in my mom's neighborhood, that wouldn't have made me nervous at all. Right. It was a different environment. Yeah. But what all that to say, like I started being, I started being suspicious of being comfortable. So basically if I got to a place where I'm like at home, I started realizing like, you should probably question if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing because it's so easy. So like now that you're so at home here, there's probably something else for you to bite off or you could take another step deeper because, and and I actually think that nervousness, you know, I think of like people that are nervous about giving a speech or talking to some girl they want to talk to, or some guy they want to do like those butterflies in your stomach, that anxiety, that nervousness. I actually think is a symptom of faithfulness. Like I'm like, if you're walking like forward into something that's calling you, that's what the word vocation is, right? Like you're, you're being called into something. And I, and I've always thought of like, it feels a lot like walking down a dark hallway, grasping the walls. Like you don't know what's coming, but you just faithfully take that next step. And then when you stop and you like stay in a season until you become let's say you, you build some proficiency, some comfort, some mastery of whatever it is you're working at. Well, guess what? Now you can carry more weight and probably there's something else for you to add to your plate. So in general, I'm like, you should always be nervous. Um, Now, I guess that's, that's easy for someone like me to say that isn't prone to nervousness and anxiety in general. Mm -hmm. Whereas like my wife who has like, everything makes her anxious, probably needs a different barometer you know different because like she's just good she's good right now wherever she is she has some anxiety about something right and it's like Mm -hmm. that 
that isn't exactly what I'm talking about. It's not the condition of anxiety, but the condition of like pushing yourself beyond what's comfortable, easy, known. Right. It's the known and unknown. That line, you should have like a foot in each of them. And as soon as that outside unknown foot is known, it's time for another step. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting. So I um, am a you know regular yoga participant. And this morning, um, something stu- something from class always kind of sticks with me for no reason whatsoever. A phrase I've heard a hundred times some, somehow resonates differently. And one of the things in, in one particular, like working on trying to, trying to eventually do a split. And it was like, move your foot forward a millimeter. And something about the word millimeter was like, it wasn't just move forward because this is a, that's an ambiguous kind of scary, how far can I move my foot? I don't know, whatever. But the idea of make it so small that you can't Mm. lose that no matter, like everyone can move a millimeter, right? Like Mm. doesn't matter even how, you know, stiff your hamstrings are, you're going to be able to move the tiniest bit. And if that's what you can do today, then that's okay. And let's celebrate it and let's be happy. Mm. And and it reminded me, I, I just finished reading this book by BJ Fogg called The um, Tiny Habits and the, mm. the Fogg Behavioral Method, right? Which is making your goals so small that you can't lose or you can't not achieve them. And then celebrating yep. gives you that inspiration that next time it's a centimeter and then maybe it's an inch and then maybe it's, you know, whatever. And so um, I think that that putting the lens around uncomfortable, we don't always, you know, for you and I, we're very uncomfortable in the discomfort, right? Like you probably more than me even, but, but I have some of that in me too. But then for people like your wife, right? She's more, she needs the millimeter, right? Like mm-hmm. maybe she can move a little bit forward, but it's got to be at her pace. That's something that is, that's, and, and being really empathetic to, to people's scale, right? Their scale of movement, right? Their pace or their scale of, of progression. Yeah. Yeah. And, and arguably on top, maybe on top of that, it's not even the same thing as much as illust- that illustrates the diversity among us. Mm-hmm. And like her and I, I think make a really good team because I always want to go blaze a trail in an, in an unknown territory uh, and she wants to tend the fire, tend the territory that exists already and make it pretty and safe and home. Right. Yeah. And, and it's funny, but it's like, no, I need people like that in my life. And the similarly, like I need the analytical people in my life, but where it's like the, like the, the, the spreadsheet oriented orderly people where I'm like quite comfortable in chaos, in fact, <laughs> arguably uncomfortable, not in chaos, right? Like there's some right. of that's temperamental. And I, and I'm, I'm aware that we can hold that up as like, a this is, this is a, you know, this is a successful temperament or a prized thing to have. But like reality is I wouldn't be able to do any of that without these other people in my right. life where it's like, no, none of these are better than the other this is like your finger and your thumb need one another to pick things up like they're we're we're a body together and and i just i have learned to really value those other people because honestly when we have these different temperaments i mean honestly the teammate the orderly teammates drive me crazy (laughs) they just drive me crazy like they everything's got to have you know what's the timeline on that and the budget on that and the and i'm like these are i'm not detail oriented i'm not it you know it's like but, but man, thank God for those questions. And every step we've taken, I look back and go, yeah, it's, it, it w- we wouldn't be where we were, where we are without those people yeah. or me or me. Right. Like we, need- right, right. No, it, yeah. it needs all of it. And that's what, you know, one of, I think one of the greatest kind of attributes of a good leader is knowing where your weaknesses are and filling them with mm-hmm. other people, like building your tribe to represent all of the different things that need to be spherical, so like mm-hmm. that makes mm-hmm. a spherical success, right? And yeah. and sometimes that is hard for for people, particularly once they get to a certain stage in their career, a certain stage in life, right? To be humble enough to say, "Hey, I'm not great at that. I can't do everything." Right? I was just talking with a colleague uh, earlier today about a particular leader who was a an absolute fantastic, capable, wonderful human being. However, never able to to see their own weaknesses and it has 
consequences because yeah. you don't bring people in who fill those needs. And, and if you don't see that as a, like, I see that as a strength. If I can yeah. bring a great tribe of people around me, yep. I get to take credit for all of our work as, as do all of they, right? Yep. Like they all get to take credit for it too. But if I try to go alone, it's very easy to pinpoint where I'm lacking. Right. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and then, you know, who's there to, to help balance. Right. So that's, that's a really great point. Really great point. So talk about Well-Built City. So Well-Built City isn't exactly an entity as it is a vision right. um, for, so the Well as a nonprofit is a 501c3 and I'm kind of to where I'm like, I'm not sure I ever really care to talk about it in any way. Like, but Well-Built Bikes is a concrete project of the Well. And right. then we have like a group that like tonight actually in the other room and when we hang up i'm gonna be going out there we have our free market that starts in about 15 minutes that they're setting up for we have people coming in getting groceries we do a lot with folks experiencing food insecurity poverty you know some of the basic material needs like we talked about before Mm -hmm. so it's a lot of stuff we used to do with the drop-in center it's a mobile distributed thing now so we have 14 grocery distributions a month that we're doing right now um we have a project called Well Fed that is a team of, um, I want to say it's all women. Yep, it's a team of women uh, working with us to help build a bridge. So we have garden projects and we have food distribution, but then there's like these challenges of like cooking food, knowing what to do with food or overcoming challenges if i don't have a stove and i have to do this with a microwave and so they have really taken on like these educational like let's help make your food make sense how can you prepare it things like that kind of come alongside us but really well-built city is an overarching vision um for our city to say like well i mean what is you know it's a it's a let's say a branded way of referring to what i think is a common dream where we all want we all want well-built cities We want cities where um, folks have access to the things they need and access to each other and where they're united around common stories and love of their place and neighborliness is a driving value in the, in the space and where businesses contribute to the common good. And, you know, where there's um, creativity and entrepreneurship and opportunity. And so these are like some broad, you know, picture aims of an of a dream and so what what the well is doing uh, and which i guess is going to kind of take the let's just say take the name or the posture of all but city what we're trying to do is set up a nonprofit holding company that uh so well built let's just i'm going to replace the well well built city so let's just (laughs) say well built city is the name of the nonprofit for lack of a like confusing this sure so the nonprofit um will then hold so it owns Well-Built Bikes and Well-Built Bikes is its own LLC. Well-Fed Community is now its own LLC. The Eden Project, which is kind of our garden initiative, is its own LLC. Um, and, so you, and so ultimately what we're trying to do is to build another city, um, but where, where we all take ownership of the needs and the problems in our city, but not necessarily ownership of the entities that we're building. So this is, so the nonprofit then becomes, so as a public charity, it's the perfect mechanism to be a common purse so that we can build interdependent and independent entities that, that, that share a common dream that can build businesses can build. So whether those are businesses or social initiatives or whatever, that they can come under this umbrella And that by stand, so I like to think of this like the Wu Tang Clan. So like, the Wu Tang Clan. Okay, do can I cuss on your on your podcast? Okay, so 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 you'll hear the song Wu Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with, right? Right. Well, if that if that's true, I would say one of the reasons that Wu Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with is because they're a clan. And so when you look at the collective, you're like, you have all of these amazing artists that could and ultimately did their own solo solo albums, solo right. careers and right. as they had because it's hard to hold a clan together right? right but initially they were like we are not we are not doing this without odb we are not doing it like we are together and we come as a package and and that idea to me is like so each of those picture each of those mcs 
super gifted, could make a career on their own, but they are so much stronger together. So Wu-Tang Clan is way greater than the sum of its parts. Like it's not just ODB plus, like it's not just these characters together, but it's synergistic. It's, they're so much greater. Similarly, I think of well-built bikes with well-fed, with the kinship, with the Eden project and whatever else comes. And I'm both trying to grow these from within as well as recruit. Like, like if I see young, hungry kind of social entrepreneurs in our city, I want to try to say to them like, Hey, here's an idea. Like we can, you can incubate this at, at the very least incubate it within the nonprofit. So you don't, you don't need to go start your own nonprofit. You don't like, we can get a lot of this things that stand in people's way out of the way. And then share some resources where we've got mechanisms in place where we can really lean on each other. And ultimately, hopefully things like the bike shop throw off some capital that could then invest this seed capital in the next startup where it's like, we're going to end up running a lawn crew and a, and a junk removal business. And, a, you know, maybe we're doing well-built houses. Like God only knows what could come of that as right. talent is recruited into the collective. But the collective, like the thing that I'm in love with is like this, this shared common purse entity, what it does is it lets us focus on, you know, so this is really interesting to me, the word equity we use in terms of like equity as in, in reference to equality, in reference to like folks having like fairness in society, things kind of working out in that way. But then we use equity in business. Like I own 40% of this company. Right. right. And I'm like, let's take equity off the table and work for equity in our, in our neighborhoods. Right. Yeah. And then let's take ownership off the table and then take ownership, full ownership of the work to be done and the projects ahead of us. And we could all take ownership in the condition of our city. Like if our city has a problem, it's our problem personally. Yeah. And this is, this is for me, like, this is what I want to do for Tampa with the rest of my life is kind of build. I want to build another city. Honestly, I know it's audacious. It's like, but I'm, I'm like, I think we could replace city hall. I think we could build a better city in the city. Like, like, and it doesn't have to put, it doesn't have to undo the city that exists. Tampa's right. awesome. It's awesome as is. It has great city officials this and that, but there's this, I want to build another city inside of that city that has a different dri- different driving values as evidenced by shared ownership, as evidenced by the kind of work we're doing, as evidenced by a business that just breaks even is the perfect business. Like if yeah. we can build a business that meets needs in the community and breaks even, it's a success. Right. Like yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't need to throw off profits because there are no shareholders. There's not even owners. It's just a nonprofit kind of expression of community development. And yeah. So that's what we're trying to figure out. And even as I'm talking through it, I'm still putting the vision and the language together for this. Like we are still groping our way down a dark hallway, kind of yeah, trying to absolutely. take the next right step, you know? But, but, but I, think that's what's so, I think that's what's so powerful about the vision is, it, you know, you started with the, the well in the most basic way, right? But not, not even under 501c3, a home, right? Just, mm-hmm. just come into our home and watch this, vision with the help of a lot of people and a lot yeah. of moving parts and a lot of great support and thinking and and messing up and starting again and whatever and now it's it's a piece of this broader but in a way it really gets back to just being yeah. a home right what you're looking for is to build a city that feels like home yep. right that 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 is not about that's really just open doors for anyone who needs to be there. Right. And, and I just, I think that that, I love this vision and I know it's going to evolve and change and grow over time indefinitely for the next however many years, but it's the first time. And I, I, I can't remember where we were, but that you mentioned this is a piece I have, I have a bigger vision. You said this to me, we're sitting on a couch somewhere, um, having a meeting, like one one of our check-in coaching meetings. And, and you said, no, but this is, I have this well-built city in my head and I don't know what it looks like yet, but this is, it's coming and it's come already so far, even though you still say it's, well, it's and I'm, I, it, it has, and I'm a lot, and like, even the fact that I'm saying it on wax, like you're recording this is, is a big <laughs> step because historically, and it may be even now it's quite foolish to be talking about this. Like when you just need to get your bike shop to be 
successful, sustained staff. It's like, that's doing quite well. Maybe why I feel a bit more comfortable with this, <laughs> but it is like, it is in, it is out there. Right. But it's like, no, I know where we're, where we're headed. And it's interesting that you say like where we started in our house. Cause ultimately it is like, like I said, I didn't want to start a nonprofit. I just wanted to be good neighbors. And the thing that's made me come around to being a nonprofit. And ultimately I'll tell you what it is. You know, that whole like corporations are, are people or corporations yeah. are a, 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 a person. Yeah. yeah. So, so I actually have concluded that that is theologically true. So that is true. Like in some really deep sense, we call personas into being and you can watch and you, and you know, you've even seen movies like the corporation where they'll analyze the personality of an entity. And of course in those, in the, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but in that they come out with like sociopathic tendencies of nonprofits where they're driven by bottom line, you do what it takes. Right. And even as you watch the development of business and it, as a whole in our society and the way our culture is going, we're like, yeah, we're not, we're not going to allow for corporations to continue to be these sociopathic monsters. And they're, and you'll, so you'll see companies like doing good things and greenwashing their products and saying, whether well, good for the earth and this and that, and that's a shaping of things to come. We are demanding that as consumers and we're looking for that. And the businesses are moving in that way. Meanwhile, nonprofits are having, they, they can't just raise money forever. They're going to have to figure out how to produce revenue, right. have other revenue streams. And if you follow the trajectory of both those things, it's where I'm trying to, I'm trying to aim at where I see them both going. But ultimately it's like, I actually believe we called a persona into being that yeah. the well or the, the well-built city or the, or well-built bikes. These are, these are corporate personalities that, yeah. that if I were taken out and someone else were to sit in the seat would make decisions based on the culture and the personalities being developed. And the question mark for me was, can those things be good neighbors? Yeah. And so it's like, Oh, it's back to the same thing. It's just like, and it really was a quite it's, and maybe still is a question mark. It's like, can an entity as in like a, like a, like a, can a corporation be a good neighbor? Can a, can a corporate entity be, um, yeah. Uh, and then, and then honestly, for me as from a Christian vantage point, can it be Christian as in, cause I think a lot of what, and what I mean by that specifically is can mm -hmm. it lay its life down? Because there's a lot, a lot of the damage done by corporations is an unwillingness to die when it's time, even old churches, frankly, should die. And a lot of the things that they're doing are, are the opposite of what they should be doing based on an effort to survive. And I'm like, actually survival is not a top priority for an individual or a corporation. And the willingness to die is actually the source of inability to be good, yeah. right? To risk your life on something worth risk or to welcome the stranger into your home, which right. if you're just worried about staying alive, you should never do. <laughs> True, true story. Yep. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's interesting. You know, there's, I had literally never thought about that, but that is the ultimate. If you have, I have a friend who says to me all the time, like, what's the worst that can happen? Anytime I'm, I'm fearful and she's encouraging me to go do whatever it is I'm fearful about. She just says, what's the worst that can happen? Like, because in the end, if you don't do as a, as an organization, as a person, as a human, right. In my mind, if you don't do what you feel called to do, then what's the point of being here. Right. And if, if what you are called to do at some point, you know, ends your life basically, then so be it. You did what you were called to do. Right. I mean, this is the, this is uh, the life we live and why we should be here. Otherwise, you know, we're just having 75 years of the same experience and calling it life. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and even worse, because I go, well, what's the worst is that I allow things like resentment to live inside of me and deceit. And because I'm like, those are actually in my mind, like what comes of, you know, bad expectations of other people, like the, it, like what ends up happening, like what, like if I just thought of, if I just looked at society and thought, man, there's people out here starving and I'm not willing to take personal responsibility for the situation and do something about it and be the neighbor that I hope, you know what I mean? To go, this is my problem. This isn't the, I could still acknowledge broken things in our systems and go, yeah, there's stuff we should be, we should be doing about that as citizens that, that ha take part in this society. But like, 
if I allow, if I just, what happens is resentment moves into our hearts. And in my mind, it's like that, that in my mind is the worst thing that could happen Yeah, because it's what makes us, I mean, frankly, for lack of a better word, demonic, destructive, hateful, murderous, like those things grow from resentment, which is, you know, I always remember 12 step meetings. They would say, um, expectations or resentment under construction. And I really love that. And I think it's right. Like I expect this of you that you didn't promise. Like, if you tell me I'll be, I'll be there at five 30, I should be able to expect that. Right. It's not an unfair expectation, but if I expect you to treat me a certain way that we didn't agree to, or I expect you to, you know, whatever, say something nice to me about my haircut when you see me or whatever, it's like that. And then I resent you for this thing that, you know, and, and, and that's exactly what happens. And I'm like, actually like the 12 step meetings is where that really was driven home for me the most. But anyway, back to what's like my imagination just started trying to populate what the worst thing that could happen was, but to me, it's not dying. It's becoming the opposite of a good neighbor, which I know fully well, how capable of I am. Like I could easily be the worst thing that ever happened to you as a neighbor right um, right if i let can. myself go that way yeah. yeah i think i'd be particularly good at it <laughs> i do but maybe that's just arrogance which is the other the other thing to watch out for right yeah arrogance is is uh, a devil in hiding uh, yeah. for sure all right so the magic question as we as we start to wrap up um is what do you think is your dharma You might have to, you might have to remind me. So this is your, so basically, yeah. So I'm an asses of every guest. Uh, Dharma is kind of the, the word that I chose to use, but there is a description of this in every culture, in every religion. So whether you call it, you know, God's calling or Mm -hmm. your internal purpose or your greatest passion, or there's some, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but Ikigaye is a, a, Um, a term. And then there's a French term that I won't begin to pronounce. It all means the same thing. It's all about like your purpose for living, your purpose for, for being here. And if you had to describe it, and I, I actually think the way we articulate it might change over time, even though the core of it doesn't actually change, but we adapt our lens on it. And so sometimes we articulate it different. So we'll just take this point in time. What would you say? I feel like there's something, okay. I'm going to try, I'm going to take a stab at this. Um, There's something about the overlap. Like if I think about like suffering Mm -hmm. and I think about the poor, um, there's something about the things I, I really do think that at some central piece of what I'm trying to do, that overlaps in all these different spaces is to proclaim the value of the things that we're avoiding. So your worst memories um, that you tend to want to hide away in a closet are arguably the richest place for you to dig gold out from within your memories and to find healing. Uh, And the people that you want nothing to do with, the other, the stranger, the, the alien, the enemy are where I think you'll find something like the healing and meaningful presence of God. Um, the, the place of suffering in your life, the things that hurt the most, the darkest places I think are where the greatest resources and values are found. And I, and I think that I have some real clarity about that. And that in some way, like I am here to proclaim the wealth of the poor and the value of suffering and the, it's like the, and, and, and actually from scripture, the word that comes to mind is, you know, and, and this is probably related. So there, you might know it from the Bible, or if you don't read the Bible, you might know it from a Bob Marley song, but the stone, <laughs> The stone that the builders rejected has become the head cornerstone. 
So where, if you went to a construction site, where would you find the stone that the builders rejected? You would find it in a dumpster. And in some sense, the, and then God uses this as the cornerstone of the kingdom, which means God is a dumpster diver. Like going into the trash bin, your trash can, and because what is your trash can but a proclamation of what you fail to value? And it is wasted. It is, it is, we waste it um, because we do not know its value. And, and so, and in some sense, I'm like, the work of God is to pull the things out of the trash and to say, these are extremely valuable. Um, I always try to illustrate that with like an apple core. We finish an apple, we throw it in the garbage, but it's like, if that goes in the compost, if that's properly valued, then life springs forth yeah. from the min, from the, from the nutrient in this, it creates good soil that these seeds can bear fruit again. And it's a cycle of life. And I think we are plagued by avoiding darkness, danger. Like we are so worried about being secure and safe and comfortable. And these, these middle-class values rob us of a rich life, actually. And, and it seems that, and so anyway, that I actually do think that's some kind of central nugget that all of my work is somehow trying to, demonstrate i love that i love that i love your apple analogy too who yeah who doesn't that is a perfect analogy i'm, I'm a little speechless over this i think <laughs> the perfect analogy of what is in our trash can is what we fail to value is awesome because you're right so, and you know it goes to the the old saying someone else's someone's trash or someone else's treasure or whatever, but it is, it's that everything in life has a value to it. We decide what we value or not. Mm -hmm. And if we work hard enough to see everything as having a value, then we may not have the capacity to value everything, but we could find That's a right. home for it, right? Like That's we right. can find someone who does, or we can put in the effort rather than just pushing it aside and discarding it. Yeah. And I mean, it's one thing to say it's in your trash can, but it's another thing to see that it's people in our society yeah. that we don't want, that we treat like the trash, like that we push to the margins. But then also like when I went to spend some time in the slums in the Philippines, it was super driven home because I saw them use as tools, things that I would have considered garbage. I saw them, there was a kind of ingenuity and a gratitude about any material thing that could be converted into a useful thing, a beautiful thing. Right. Um, and I just was so envious of that. And I just thought, man, and, and it, it, the conclusion is it's really, everything is waste. It's in the garbage can. It's being wasted because I mean, it's waste because we waste it basically yeah. Yeah. like that's, that's what's happening. And, and we, we don't have eyes to see the value of our time our abilities, the people around us, the things in our hands, um, and so much of it we squander. And I don't know, I could be wrong about that, but I do think I'm trying to like find the overlap of a lot of the different things that I care about. And I think at some level it is proclaiming value of things we don't see the value in. Yeah. Illuminating, illuminating the value in things that other people don't see. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's awesome. So, uh, we're going to wrap up. So tell us yep. uh, if you had one piece of kind of advice for the masses, what would it be? What's your favorite piece of advice? Maybe something that you, a piece of advice you've gotten that you'd like to share with someone or something that you've come to on your own that you would like to share with others. What would you, what would you say to someone who said, what's the greatest piece of advice? Mm. Man, the greatest piece of advice. Uh, Well, this is something that has just become clear to me. I don't think I heard it anywhere, but you hear people say all the time, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And I actually think that's very stupid, bad advice. So it's true ultimately, but I think what you need to hear, what is good advice is if it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly over and over and over and over until you figure out how to do it well or right whatever. So ultimately it is worth doing right. And so you shouldn't do something wrong forever 
because that's just stupid too. But like, (laughs) but, but like to, so, so we used to say in our house, like we do everything wrong the first time. And it became a bit of a, like a, a mantra among us. And it is just a, you know, chewing on ourselves, but ultimately I think it gave us the ability to have the, is like permission. Like it was like, we're going to try something and we're going to screw it up, but that's what we planned on doing. And, and, and because of that, it like liberates us from the anxiety because so many of us are paralyzed by a fear of failure, by doing something wrong, by be, what if I have to do it over? And I just think none of that matters. And actually what's more tragic, what's more wasteful is how much doesn't get done because we're busy trying to plan the perfect execution where I'm like, actually just do something today, like try it try to do it and do it wrong. If you have any inclination, because all of the ideas of like, I'll do that one day, I'll be generous. Once I make a lot of money is right. nonsense. You actually won't, you have to do it today to always be that kind of person that's generous, but also the doer, like anything, if there's something you think you want to try, I'm like, try it, try yeah. it immediately with whatever's in your hand. Um, and so what you might have to clean up. You might have to say, you're sorry. You might have to do it again someday, but like, yeah. it's worth trying. And so if something's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. I like it. I love Mm -hmm. it. All right. For those of you who would like to find John and hear more, number one, you can subscribe to his podcast called The Work Ethic. Uh, One day there'll be a co-written book about the work ethic from John and I in the future. Yet title yet to be determined, but uh, we'll keep, uh, we'll keep plugging away at that and promote it as it comes up. And how else can they reach you, John? Um, most social media, I am personally, uh, it's at Johnny produce and, um, at Wubble bikes, you can find Wubble bikes, um, on basically most social media platforms. Um, yeah. And I mean, and are you, uh, what initiatives might you be needing volunteers for anything that people can come and get involved? Well, I am in the middle of building out a bus right now. So if anyone's got, um, welding abilities i really need someone to help with welding and i'm really bad at this because i'm like i have what's on my mind immediately that i just came over here from trying to work on so that's what i need help with because i'm thinking about it (laughs) um we do grocery distributions i i'll tell you what uh john j-o-n at wellbuilt.city you can hit me up you can email me if you want to get involved because i actually would prefer to say I want to know what's in your hand, what interests you, what you're good at, and to find the right place for you. I mean, we do food distributions, but honestly, a lot of people, there might be something new that needs to be created to fit what they have in their hand. Um, and so I like to work with actual people yeah, uh, rather I love than given the blanket statements. So yeah, just email me and we'll figure it out. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much. As always, it is my sincere pleasure to spin dialogue with you anytime I get the chance. So thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. All right. This has been another episode of the Becoming Congruent podcast, a production of In Pursuit, outcomes-driven, impact-focused. Thanks for listening. I'll see you around the journey soon.